Listening to the Coffee Hour, I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting the Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live uncommon. Well, we finally made it. <laughs> a little late. A little late. But okay. uh, thanks for hanging in there, folks, who are waiting for searching the scriptures in the February issue of The Lutheran Witness. I realize it is March. I'm well aware of that. It's okay, though. But... We're here. We're here, and we're going to study God's Word today with the Reverend Roy Askins, Managing Editor of The Lutheran Witness. Pastor Askins, welcome back to the Coffee Hour. Thank you. Great to be back. Looking forward to digging into this month's Searching the Scriptures Unceasing Prayer on page 28, the very back of the February issue. So what are we looking at this month? This month we are doing a continuation, or we are continuing uh, St. Paul's prayer that he begins in the first chapter of Ephesians. Uh, We noted last month, or I should suppose I should say in January, we noted how how St. Paul began this prayer with a blessing to God in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he continues blessing God throughout that entire uh, first half of the prayer. He never actually gets to a petition. And, uh, and then here, now beginning in verse 15, in the second half of the prayer, 15 to 23, St. Paul will actually begin his petition and his request uh, on behalf of the Ephesians. Now, the other thing I want to note is, as we also said last month, this, is, uh, th- this prayer is actually composed of two long sentences, uh, the first from verse 3 to verse 14, and the second from verse 15 to 23. We struggle a bit with this in English. We can't handle one long periodic sentence, uh, but uh, St. Paul does this again here in this verse, or this, uh, this section, to demonstrate once again his facility, his ability to use uh, Greek rhetorical uh, tools, and one of those is what we call the periodic sentence, one long sentence uh, stacking phrase on phrase. So it's going to break sometimes as we do the study in odd places, uh, but that's because uh, we struggle to do this in, in English well. So, mm-hmm. All right, question one. Let's do it. All right. Read Ephesians 1, verse 15. Only one verse. Only one I'm verse. impressed. Faith always has an okay. object. It clings to someone or something. What was the object of the Ephesians' faith, and what was the result of that faith? So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, For this reason, St. Paul writes, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, dot, 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 to be continued in the next question. Uh, St. Paul is kicking off here, uh, explaining uh, why he's uh, praying on behalf of the Ephesians. Uh, I want to note a couple of things here. One of the other things we're going to notice as we go through this this half of the prayer is it tends to be more focused on the Ephesians in particular. Previously, uh, the first half of the prayer tended to be more broad and cosmic in scope. Here, we tend to narrow this down and focus it on uh, the individual Christian, or the, the, I should say the Ephesians there, uh, and that's what he's focusing on. He talks about you know the eyes of your heart, your love toward all the saints. This is deeply personal, and he's using this to draw in his hearers uh, who are hearing the reading and preaching of this uh, this verse. Now, uh, to the question, the object of faith, what is the object of faith? Here we get to have a quick grammar lesson from the editor. Yes. What is a, a, <laughs> uh, an object? Uh, in, in grammar, we talk about direct objects and indirect objects. So we might say Roy threw the ball to Sarah. Um, uh, the ball is the object. Roy is the subject. Uh, Sarah is the indirect object, right? Uh, so the ball is the thing. It's the object is the ball. It's the thing being act, acted upon. However, in matters of faith, it's a bit different. Faith also 
also has an object, but uh, faith does not act upon the object. Faith actually receives or clings to the object. And in the case of Christian faith, uh, the object of this faith is our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith clings to him, receives what he has. Faith always has an object. Now, our faith can cling uh, to the wrong thing at times. For instance, we might have faith in medicine or the government or our money or even our family. But all of these things uh, are not what the Christian clings to. The Christian clings to Jesus Christ and has confidence in him. Uh, and so, now, what is the consequence? So the, the Ephesians, as St. Paul has said, has this have this faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is the, the result of this faith? Well, uh, their love toward the saints. That is to say, uh, their their confidence, their trust, uh, what they have received from Jesus Christ moves them now to live in love toward all the saints in the Christian church to do good works, right? And and we're going to get uh, to this in, I don't know, I suppose a couple of months now. I'm not sure how we're going <laughs> to work out the, <laughs> the future issues of this. Uh, but eventually in verse uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, uh, St. Paul is going to talk about the good works that God prepared in advance for us to walk in. Uh, the Ephesians were doing this in their love toward the saints as a consequence of their faith clinging to Jesus and receiving what Jesus gives. So that's the result of the faith. Love toward the neighbor, good works. Question two. Let's go. Read Ephesians chapter one, verse 16. St. Paul's regular prayer probably grew out of the daily prayer habit of Jews. Uh, They would typically pray, namely the third, sixth, and ninth hours of the day, counting from sunrise. Uh, See Luke chapter 18, one to eight, and Luke 21, verse 36. What do we learn from Jesus and St. Paul about our own prayer life? So Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 16, St. Paul continues, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So we have this idea of, once again, the unceasing prayer, continual prayer. Uh, and once again, as, as the question notes, this probably grew out of the prayer habit of Jews who would pray uh, regular office, daily offices. Uh, throughout the day. In other words, the point is, and the whole point of this question, what I want people to reflect on are the appointed times for prayer and regularly um, praying during these times. Um, This doesn't mean when we talk about unceasing prayer that there's some sort of mystical communion, some sort of uh, uh, St. Paul continually praying on some spiritual level all the while taking care of other uh, earthly matters. Rather, it means the idea, the unceasing prayer, the regular prayer, is that he is daily praying uh, in this ordered way uh, with this regular prayer habit. So what does this mean for us? That's actually, uh, we can see a couple of examples uh, as we talk uh, about Jesus' own prayer habit from Luke chapter 18 and Luke 21. So if we go to Luke 18, this is the parable of the persistent widow. I love Mm. this passage (laughs) where uh, the widow comes to this judge who, as uh, the text says, neither feared God nor respected man. Mm. And this woman kept coming to him, this widow, and give me justice against my adversary. And he refuses and she keeps doing it and keeps doing it. And finally, the the unrighteous judge says, fine, I'll do it. I'm just tired of listening listening to her ask. And the point of the parable is this, if an unrighteous judge will do that, how much more will the righteous judge who sends his own son to die for us, right? So the idea, again, of being constant, persistent in prayer, uh, knowing that God hears and will give what is best for us. If the unrighteous judge will do it, certainly also will our righteous heavenly father uh, care for us and provide for us. 
Now, in Luke chapter 21, uh, the passage here, I'll go ahead and read this, 21 verse 36. This comes at the end of Jesus' teaching, right before he is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners, and he's talking about the end times, and he tells his apostles, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things, right? So the idea of uh, staying awake constantly in prayer, and what is it, once again, what does this prayer look like? It is not necessarily some, uh, you know, once again, mystical idea where I'm constantly off always praying in, in whatever I'm doing, but actually this ordered regular prayer, regular worship uh, established uh, for the sake of, of coming to God in prayer. Now, uh, this is great that they did this then. How do we do this today? Well, the early church ab- actually established what's called the hours, and, and they would pray, especially the monks and the nuns would pray also at regular uh, hours of the day. Um, often it was 9, 12, 3, 6, 9, 12 again, and every three hours they would have some sort of daily office. This is where we get matins and vespers and things like that. Um, We don't typically tend to do it as regularly these days, but we can still do this. And I was going to ask you folks, uh, actually, Sarah, and I'm giving you a chance to think about it while I'm I'm, uh, asking here. Oh, boy. How do you do these regular prayers in your own homes? Like, what what sort of habits do you build into your own homes and your own lives together with your families that actually help uh, you keep this daily regular prayer habit? Well, I mean, we have, what, Luther's morning prayer. Yes. We have... In your house, it really is Luther's morning it's prayer. Really Luther's morning, it's morning prayer with Luther, really. <laughs> that's fantastic. Uh, Mealtime prayers as well. I mean, that's not tied to a specific time of day, but we've got the, the Luther's uh, mealtime prayer up on the wall next to our table so yes. that we know the words to it because there's different translations yes. depending on how old you are. Yes, yes, and who you're praying it with. That's and right. And who you're praying it with. Indeed, yeah. indeed. Uh, in our house, it's uh, the mealtime prayers mm-hmm. and... Uh, uh, bedtime prayers, which include some catechesis as well. So we pray the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer, and special petitions at bedtime. And that's yeah, that's exactly what I'm getting at with both of you. Is there, there's also the sense of uh, praying regular f- around meals, but also this uh, regular worship that we might not think of a prayer, but we call it morning prayer and evening prayer. You can find it actually in your hymnal, where you use this as a guide not simply for uh, not only for strictly literal praying, but also being in the Word and around the catechesis and instruction, catechesis and instruction of God's Word. I don't remember the exact pages in the Lutheran Service Book. Is it two ninety five, two ninety six, two ninety seven? I think so. Something like in those. Morning daily prayer for morning. Yeah, yeah daily prayer for morning. Yeah, yeah, two ninety five. So I, I encourage all of you listening. This is a, actually a great way to do this and to build this regular habit of prayer into your home is to literally do the morning prayer, um, noon prayer, and and evening prayer in your own homes. I, I'll be honest, we we struggle. Um, my wife, my wife and kids have to get to school fairly early, so we don't do the morning prayer, but we do definitely the evening prayer with our children every day. Uh, work through the versicles, uh, do the readings, uh, and and uh, the prayers together. This is part of this regular prayer uh, pattern that we see Christ establishing. Very good. Question three. Let's do it. Read Ephesians 1, 17 to 18. St. Paul starts by making two primary requests. What are those requests? So uh, St. Paul is remembering them in their prayers and then continuing verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And actually, I'm going to stop there. That's not the end of verse 18, but uh, that's actually going to get picked up in the next question. So St. Paul uh, starts by making two requests. What are these? Well, God would um, 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. So these are the two requests, that God would give to the Ephesians a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, and then to have the heart, eyes of the heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Okay, so let's move into uh, talk about this first one first, the spirit of wisdom. Note he says the spirit of wisdom, not simply a spirit. This is definitely a reference to the Holy Spirit uh, that, of course, they received in the waters of holy baptism, but he prays that God would continue to bestow the Spirit on them in the spirit of wisdom and revelation. These are qualities of the Holy Spirit given for the sake of the Ephesians, that they would have the wisdom and the teaching of the Holy Spirit uh, uh, for the sake of, of knowing what is this uh, salvation they have received in Jesus Christ. This is all kind of revolving around God's Word. Wisdom, revelation, knowledge, these are kind of major themes that are going to come up again and again in Ephesians. And they're contrasted in this book of Ephesians uh, with paganism, which is ignorance and false knowledge, right? So God wants the Ephesians to have wisdom and knowledge as opposed to pagans or unbelievers who do not have knowledge, who, who, are, who are ignorant or have this false knowledge. Now, note also that this giving of the Holy Spirit uh, is a fulfillment of Christ's promise in John chapter 16, verses 12 through 15. Uh, Jesus promises the, whole, the apostles that he will send the Holy Spirit that will guide you into all truth. He is the Spirit of all truth. He'll guide them into truth. Uh, this is a continuation, a continuing fulfillment of that promise uh, in St. Paul's prayer here for the Ephesians. Now, uh, he also continues with uh, the second point, I should say here, um, the, two, the second request, is that we would have the eyes of the heart enlightened that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Note all the wonderful mixed metaphors here. The eyes of your heart. Everybody knows hearts don't have eyes, right? (laughs) Not only that, he's talking about eyes of the heart and being called, right? So he's mixed eyes, heart, and ears all together. What's going on here? Well, this is a a combination of the three different senses that we actually see all the way back in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, where we hear Isaiah say this, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed, right? So this is uh, Isaiah, you know, calling out the the unrepentance of Israel. But now we see the fulfillment of all three of these things as the eyes of the heart are enlightened in the calling of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's just a beautiful way that St. Paul uh, turns this whole thing around and points to the fact that this is exactly what the Ephesians have, uh, faith in Jesus Christ uh, that has been heard by the ears and received into the heart, right? All through the work of the Holy Spirit. We'll pick up with the rest of verse 18 in just a moment. We'll continue our conversation with Pastor Roy Askins as we're searching the scriptures here on the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. (laughs) 
Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Eddie Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are searching the scriptures in the February issue. <laughs> yes, I know it's March, but it's uh, the February <laughs> issue of search of the Lutheran Witness, uh, digging into searching the scriptures with Pastor Roy Askins. All right, so we left off um, with question number three for searching the scriptures this month, looking at Ephesians chapter one, verses seventeen and eighteen. Are we ready to go on to eighteen and nineteen? I think we are. All right, so question number four: Read Ephesians chapter one, verses eighteen through nineteen. How does Saint Paul describe the hope? To which he has called you. So we're going to pick up at the last half of verse 18. We started the first half of the last question. Uh, we're going to pick up here with what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Dot, dot, dot. Once again, one big long sentence. It's really hard to kind of break this down because he stops in the middle so many times. So, um, how does St. Paul describe the hope to which he has called you? Let's clarify a few things real quick. What is this hope? What is this phrase, the hope to which he has called you? What does this mean? Well, the hope uh, is, of course, the hope that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, this is, uh, we also see, if you remember from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, there towards the end of that chapter, um, uh, St. Paul says, so these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. We actually see something very similar here in Ephesians, uh, the last half of Ephesians. Uh, hope and love have, or I'm sorry, faith and hope have already, or I'm sorry, let's try that again. Faith and love have already shown up in the verse, in verse 15 there towards the beginning. So here now towards the end of verse 18, we have hope. All three of these once again showing up again. Verse 15, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your love towards the saints. Now he's going to move on to the hope to which God has called these Ephesians. Okay. So hope, salvation, a blessed end, hope uh, in Jesus Christ. This is in contrast. St. Paul is, is offering this hope in contrast to uh, what the pagans might have had, uh, what, what little hope they might have had. And, and just think a little bit, once again, of the other views of the end of the world. Uh, as Christians, we have hope in our Lord Jesus Christ that the uh, end times are going to come and there will be an in fact, end. But contrast this with other views such as reincarnation or uh, atheism. Reincarnation says it's just an ongoing cycle, never ending. What hope of an end is there in that? Uh, not a, None at all, right? Or in atheism, an end in nothingness. It is not a blessed hope. It is just an end. Well, uh, we have, uh, as, our, as Christians, a hope in salvation, a hope in a blessed end. And this is uh, a hope to which God has called us in Christ, to which he called the Ephesians in Christ, and to which he has also called us. Okay, so now to the actual question, uh, how does St. Paul describe this? Well, he describes this in two ways that I think are, are really fantastic. He talks about the riches of his glorious inheritance and the immeasurable greatness of his power. Uh, I think sometimes we get uh, tired, and, and we might have discussed this in the last issue, or last time too, I don't remember. It's been a while because we did it back in January, right? <laughs> uh, we sometimes struggle to talk about forgiveness because we get a little bored with it. Uh, you know, it's, it's like it's just forgiveness of sins, right? And so I think a lot of times pastors get caught in this and they have to find new and inventive ways to talk about the forgiveness of sins and whatnot. And, uh, and what we see here is Paul kind of unraveling and, and explaining for us just how wonderful this, this forgiveness is. And I like to talk about um, here uh, an author, uh, Dorothy Sayers, who talks about this boredom that people have with doctrine and dogma. And she actually says, no, the dogma is the drama. Just think about this for a minute, that God created a world that rebelled 
rebelled against him and hated him and despised him. And rather than saying, fine, I'm done with it, destroying it and letting it go, he says no, and he becomes part of that creation himself and sends his own son to suffer and die that he might redeem this. This is the drama of creation, the very dogma and doctrine of the church. Uh, and this this forgiveness, the way, the way she talks about this and the way we see also here in St. Paul, this is the immeasurable greatness of God's power, the riches of his glorious inheritance that we also receive. Uh, and so this is kind of, uh, it looks like to the eyes, to the mortal eyes, we're just seeing plain, normal, uh, boring, ordinary things. But the eyes of faith, the enlightened eyes of the heart, we could say, actually see something that's far greater and far beyond this. And I, and I always think of here when I, when I talk about this, um, stanza seven from To Jordan Came the Christ Our Lord. Mm. Uh, just a beautiful way of describing what happens as we receive the forgiveness of sins, as we receive the immeasurable greatness of God's power, his great riches, uh, here in verse uh, stanza seven. All that the mortal eye beholds is water as report, right? We're just seeing water being poured on the head of some baby, right? But before the eye of faith unfolds the power of Jesus' merit, for here it sees a crimson flood to all our ills bring healing, the wonders of his precious blood, the love of God revealing, assuring his own pardon. This is the glorious inheritance that is yours in Christ Jesus, received in the waters of baptism, that though your eyes might be bored with it and your ears tired of it, your faith clings to and recognizes as the great uh, riches, immeasurable riches of God's glory. It's a great reminder. Yes. All I right. love that, that hymn. But yes, that is a great hymn. And you should sing all seven stanzas. Yes, you should. All together. They should all belong together. <laughs> Uh, yes. Uh, question five. <laughs> Read Ephesians 1, 20 through 21. What has God worked in Christ Jesus for the Ephesians and also for you? Read Psalm 110. How does Psalm 110 prefigure God's work in Christ Jesus described by St. Paul in Ephesians 1, 20 through 21? Okay. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. So continuing again on with this prayer, according to the working of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And actually, even though we're going to get to verse 22, I'm going to go ahead and read it now here. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, so what has God worked in Christ Jesus? Uh, there's actually four things I want to point to and uh, and uh, explain as, as what God has actually accomplished. Uh, in verse 20, we see uh, first that God raised Christ from the dead, right? This is the great working that he's done. He raised Christ from the dead. He didn't uh, only raise him from the dead, but he also seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And then we're going to jump down to verse 22. Uh, he put all things under his feet and he gave all gave him as head over all things to his church. Because those are the four things, raising, seating, subordinating, subordinating, and appointing him or giving him as head of the, head of the church. Now, what does this mean for you? So beginning with the first one that God raised Jesus from the dead as the firstborn of the dead, you will likewise also be raised from the dead in Christ Jesus. Okay, so that's the first thing. Second, he seated him at the right hand of power, which means that he now comes to you uh, through the preaching of his word and the blessed sacrament. Here, uh, I want to encourage you all to keep an eye out for the May issue of the Lutheran Witness because we're going to talk about the ascension Ooh. and the importance of the ascension for the sacrament, right? Ooh. Christ ascended so that he might give us his body and blood in the blessed sacrament. So that's uh, number two. Yeah, I thought it was pretty awesome, too. <laughs> uh, 
uh, and actually, it wasn't even my idea to do the ascension. Somebody else recommended it, and it's oh fantastic. Boy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, three. <laughs> he has subordinated all things to Christ, which means that now all of creation is subordinate to Him and falls under His purview. That is, the one who died for you is uh, is one who uh, to whom all things are subordinated. Uh, and now this will also inform, as we're going to find out later in Ephesians, uh, particularly Ephesians five, then our relationship, our submission to one another, uh, because it is all informed by our submission to Christ. But we're going to have to wait a couple of months to get to that to that part of the study. And then finally, uh, number four, he gave, he appointed Jesus as head of the church, which means now that you live in him as his body. He is the head, you are the body. So this is the the great uh, span of what our Lord has accomplished in Christ Jesus. Now, as for Psalm 110, I will encourage you all to go uh, read this at, at, in your own home on your own time. Uh, it's a beautiful passage where we that our Lord elucidates and talks about also in the Gospels. You'll recognize it when you read it. Um, go read that and you can ask your pastor for the answer to that question. <laughs> Last question, number six. Number six. Read Ephesians 1, 22 to 23. How does the prayer climax? What is the great work God has completed in Christ? And how do you participate in it today? Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 22 to 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to his church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, so once again, uh, talking about a few things that uh, that are going to come up later in the book of Ephesians and that we kind of previewed in the last question. Uh, he put all things under his feet. Uh, that put all things, uh, that actually is, once again, the word for submission. So he submitted all things under his feet. And once again, this comes back in, in the book of Ephesians and talks about this relationship uh, that we have together as the people of God, but our, in our relationship to one another, but then also our relationship to Jesus Christ is one of submission. We are in submission to Jesus Christ. Uh, St. Paul calls this also in Romans chapter 6, verse 18, being slaves to righteousness. That the, the contrast is, of course, you can be either enslaved to sin or you can be enslaved to righteousness. And being enslaved to righteousness is actually that which frees us. So it is this wonderful paradox that in our very slavery to Christ, we are freed uh, to, to be who he has called us to be, right? True freedom actually only takes place as we are submitted to him uh, in slavery to righteousness. It's a beautiful way to describe this. And this is exactly one of Luther's great insights. And then finally gave him his head over all things to his church. Uh, he is our head. We grow up into him. Uh, also, language we'll find elsewhere throughout the scriptures as well, that Christ is the head and we are the body. Now, we participate in this when we hear the proclamation of God's word and receive uh, his gifts. This is where his kingdom comes to us, where we participate as his body uh, and receive what he has to give us. And then we live out, as we see at the beginning of this prayer, once again, we live this out then, uh, this faith that we have received in, in love and service to our neighbor. I'll give you a minute. Excellent. Let's just go extend it a little bit here today. Uh, a minute to to wrap it up. Excellent. So uh, uh, this is the this is actually kind of the concluding uh, part of the prayer here. Uh, Saint Paul has had this you know one long two sentence prayer that we've spent the last two months studying, and now next month we're going to move into the passages that are so well known among Lutherans, uh, Ephesians chapter two, particularly verses eight and ten. But the entire passage is a glorious conversation about uh, our redemption from being dead in sin to to being made alive in Christ Jesus, and that it's all given completely and totally uh, by. 
grace. Uh, and the result of this then that we're going to see at the last half of chapter two in two months is that then we are united, uh, Jews and Gentiles, all of God's people are united together uh, in Christ Jesus. Amen. Lord Amen. be praised. Amen. The Reverend Roy Askins, Managing Editor of The Lutheran Witness. Thanks so much for searching the scriptures with us in the February issue. We'll get to the March issue soon enough. Thanks so much for being our guest in the coffee hour. Thank you very much. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere.